standing for just a moment. If you have a Bible, turn it to the book of Proverbs, chapter 29, Proverbs chapter 29. Again, I want to welcome all of you who are visiting with us today. We still have a large number of people who are not here and still afraid of the coronavirus, and so some are here at some times and some are here at other times. I'm glad, though, that the Lord is here. The Lord is the one we must have. We want to welcome uh, Dr. Foster and Linda back from their vacation uh, out in Washington State. I don't know how many fish he may have caught. He usually goes fishing out there with uh, his uh, brother-in-law, and we're just delighted that they got back safely and had a good time. I think uh, Dale Hazelwood and his family, I think, are traveling back today. So many people trying to get in some last-minute breaks here at the end of the summer. It's very difficult for me to believe that it is September. It is difficult for me to believe that. Nevertheless, it is September. (laughs) It's like somebody said, God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it. No, if God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. And then the last thing I want to say is today we have a dear brother with us that had to move up north, and he's back with us today, Jess Crispin. Let's thank the Lord for that. (laughs) Jess, we're glad to see you, brother. Glad to see you and glad you're still moving like those Timex watches. Still going. Proverbs uh, chapter 29. Now, I need to say something. For those of you who are visiting, we've been studying the story of Joseph in the Bible, but often on the first Sunday of the month, I interrupt the series and bring you a topical message, and that's what I intend to do today. Proverbs chapter 29 says in verse 1, and I'm reading from the King James Version. I'll give you some other translations in just a moment. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word, and let God's people say, praise the Lord, and you may be seated. Many, many years ago, an old evangelist named Roth Barnard, not Ralph, but Roth, R-O-L, P.H. Roth Barnard was preaching on the subject, the God of the Bible kills people. And his text was Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 1, he that being often reproved hardens his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. The New King James Version has it this way. He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and there is no remedy. The New Revised Standard Version has it this way, one who is often reproved yet remains stubborn will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Well, after Brother Barnard's message, somebody approached him and said to him, My God wouldn't do that. To which Brother Barnard replied, I suspect your God wouldn't, but the God of the Bible will. 
It was the same Ralph Barnard who in the 1950s, very much like an inspired prophet, correctly predicted the demise or the death of many of the cardinal doctrines, many of the main doctrines, major doctrines of Scripture among evangelicals. That is, Ralph Barnard predicted that many major doctrines confessed by Christians since the first century would be soon denied and explained away in mass. And he said the very first one to go would be the doctrine of eternal punishment, the doctrine which we call the doctrine of hell. Now, the increasingly modern attitude toward divine punishment for sin is, my God wouldn't do that. But I must agree with Brother Barnard that the God of the Bible will. I think he was right on the money. But 25 or 30 years later, after he made that statement, leading seminaries began to deny cardinal doctrines, the virgin birth of Christ, the vicarious substitutionary death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the doctrine of eternal punishment. In fact, the doctrine of hell, or the doctrine of eternal punishment, was the first to go. Now, one of the leading proponents of some of these modern radical denials of Scripture was a fellow, a Swiss Protestant theologian, passed away in 1968 by the name of Karl Barth. Karl Barth set forth a certain theory, which I'm going to expose you to this morning, called universalism. There are two of these schools of thought that have become prominent today. You don't hear pastors, preachers, teachers, folks that say they're teaching Scripture, theologians, name them, but in fact, that is what they are teaching. One is universalism. Another one is uh, annihilism, annihilationism. So let's look at annihilationism. Annihilationism teaches that after the last judgment, all unsaved human beings, all fallen angels, and perhaps even Satan himself, will be totally destroyed so as not to exist. That is, their consciousness will be extinguished rather than them suffering everlasting torment in hell. Now, the basis of that doctrine is that a gracious God who is all-powerful would not allow anyone to suffer forever in hell. The internet answer, I went on the internet and asked, what is eternal torment? And the answer I got is, quote, the doctrine of eternal torment represents our loving God as an implacable tyrant. That is the answer that I got. Annihilationism teaches that when this thing is over, God will annihilate all of those who did not believe upon the Lord Jesus as their Messiah, as their Christ. There will be no eternal punishment. 
The justification for such a doctrine as annihilationism is simply an appeal to sentimental reason and not to Scripture. In other words, the reason of man is made to be the infallible rule of what is fair and what is right and not the will of God and certainly not the will of God as revealed in Scripture. This is annihilationism. Now the second one, which Barth had a lot to do with, is universalism. Universalism is the teaching that the salvation of all souls will occur. The belief in the salvation of all souls. That is that all human beings, and some say even the devil himself and the fallen angels, will eventually be saved, will be reconciled to God. And many in today's world embrace all religions. Such a, peop- a person is called an omnist, O-M-N-I-S-T. You know, down in Atlanta, you have the, the omni, the, the all-embracing basketball court, I think it is. And so om- omnism recognizes and claims to respect all religions and all of their gods or the lack thereof. Now again, we must remember that these schools of thought and many others do not find justification in the Bible, but simply in the choice, the choice to believe these types of teaching. We must remember also that there is a vast difference, there are vast differences, I should say, between faith and between belief. Belief rests upon the will of man and the reason of man and the choice of man. Faith rests upon the will of God and the revelation of God and the choice of God. The will of man and the choice of man rest upon limited knowledge and limited unbelief. But the will of God and the sovereign decision of God rest upon the infinite knowledge of God and the perfect justice of God. Men cannot even see into next week. In fact, I can't even see into this afternoon. I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, but God sees into eternity from eternity. Men look upon the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Belief pits self against God. Faith believes God. What does the Scripture say? I hope you'll bear with me because I'm going to read several passages of Scripture for you. I'll tell you where they are. You can go back and read them in their entirety when you are so pleased to do so. Does the Scripture teach and justify eternal punishment? And if so, why does the Scripture teach such a doctrine as eternal punishment? Well, to begin, God is holy. God is righteous and God is good. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is a quote from the opening words of Psalm 22. God is holy, has something to do with the death of Christ for our sins. He is righteous, he is good. So let me ask you a question. Is it right to let a guilty man go free? Is it right to punish an innocent man? 
If it's not right to let a guilty man go free, how can God let us go free? If it's not right to punish an innocent man, how could he have punished his own son? Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, He that justifies the wicked and he that condemns the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. When the Lord passed by Moses, we read in Exodus chapter 34, He said, I am the Lord God, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am long-suffering, I am abundant in goodness and truth, I will keep mercy for thousands, I will forgive iniquity and transgression and sins, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus chapter 34. Now since God is holy, He will not punish the innocent, and He will not pardon the guilty. Since God is righteous, He will do what is right. He cannot do what is wrong. In fact, we find out what is right by observing what God does. Since God is love, He must love what is right and hate what is wicked. Wicked. So the God of the Bible is holy, He is righteous, and He is good. So I ask a question like this. Why did the Lord drive Adam and Eve out of the garden? Why did he keep them from the tree of life? Well, he drove them out of the garden because he didn't want them to partake of the tree of life. It's explained for us in Genesis chapter 3, lest they live forever in a fallen state. After they had fallen, if they had partaken of the tree of life, they would have been preserved in a falling state forever. Why did God confuse the language at the Tower of Babel? Why did God send a flood that destroy the entire race in this world, leaving only eight souls, Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three wives, alive? Why did God open up the earth and swallow up Korah and 250 of his followers, including all of their families and all of their children? Because they rebelled against God. Moses and would not hear God in the mouth of Moses. Why do these things happen? The God of the Bible does kill people. He has killed people, and I will hope to show you that he is killing people today. Now, that's a tough doctrine for you, but just listen to me and hear me out. One person, one purpose of hell is to execute justice. Another purpose of hell is to reveal the holiness and the righteousness of God and to show what God loves and what God hates. Now, is eternal punishment, is the wrath and judgment of God taught in the Bible? Well, listen to these passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, God has showed it unto them. The wrath of God, he says, is revealed. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name? Have we not in thy name done many wonderful works? But then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, I will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Acts chapter 17, in the past God winked at men's ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man he has ordained, and he has given assurance unto all men that he will judge them in that he has raised him from the dead." 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, We're waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 9, Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Jude, verses 11 through 13, he says, Woe unto them, they've gone after the way of Korah. Vengeance will be taken upon those who know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are spots in your feast of charity, clouds without water, trees whose fruit withers, trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, forming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Revelation chapter 6, I'm almost through. Revelation chapter 6, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captain and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountain. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? Revelation chapter 20, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them." And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake 
of fire. Now, I want you to turn to John chapter 3, verse 16. Would you do that in your Bibles? John chapter 3, and everybody should know verse 16. John chapter 3, and verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. I said verse 16, verse 15, but have eternal life. God so loved the world, verse 16, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It is verse 16. I'm sorry I'm confusing you. John 3, 16, all of you know that, I'm sure. Now, when we look at that verse, generally what is emphasized there is the love of God, and rightly so. God so loved the world. But what did He do because He loved the world? He gave His only begotten Son. Why did He give His only begotten Son? That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, what happened to His only begotten Son? Well, His only begotten Son perished. He perished in a physical sense. He's the one who, when hanging upon the cross, said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you realize, my friends, that every pounding of the nails into the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ was saying, God will judge sin. God will judge sin. God is holy. God is righteous. God is good. And because God is love, he can't love what's wrong. He can't love wrong things. He must love that which is right, which is righteous, and which is good. Now, if you notice, for example, verse 13, John Gospel, and verse 13, he's talking to Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night to ask him some questions. And he says to Nicodemus, No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. For as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now look at verse 36. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. He that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now he tells us in verse 13 that Jesus came down from heaven. That means that Jesus is God. He tells us in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus was lifted up on the cross to save those who believe. He tells us in verses 15 and 16 
that Jesus died so that we would not perish. That is, that we would not suffer punishment. What is the punishment? The punishment is eternal punishment. He tells us in verse 17 that God sent his son to save. Now, whoever believes will not be condemned. Whoever does not believe now lives under condemnation. Men condemn themselves, verse 19. If they love darkness, then the Lord will give them what they love. He will give them a place of darkness forever. He that will come to God's light is shown what he is. That is, if I come to the light of God, then the light of God shines not only on me, but in me to reveal to me that I am a sinner, that I stand in need of a Savior. He tells us in verse uh, John chapter 5. Would you turn over to John chapter 5? Very important word, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 24. I say unto you, Jesus says, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life. He shall not come into condemnation, notice this now, but is past. He has already passed from death to life. Now I want you to know something. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and believing on him doesn't have anything to do with you agonizing for a week or two over your sins. It doesn't have anything to do with you crying and saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has only to do with what you think of God's Son. The Scripture says, if you believe, now you may be, you know, I had a real struggle when I came to know the Lord. I read a book called Joseph Aline's Alarm to the Unconverted. If you can ever get that book, it'll keep you up at night. If you read that book, Joseph Aline's Alarm to the Unconverted, written several hundred years ago. So I had a real struggle because I couldn't understand how in the world a holy and good God could ever receive me a sinner, the sinner that I was. And I said last week, I see more of a need for Christ today than I did then. I have more of an insight into my sinful nature than I did then, and to the nature of sin and to the implications of that than I did way back then years ago. But according to this verse, if you hear the word of Christ, now we know that to hear means to be a shema hearer, S-H-E-M-A, shema, the Hebrew word, it's translated back in the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word translated here is the word Shema, and it is a word that means hear and obey. In other words, if you hear God's word, but you're not interested in obeying it, you haven't heard it. Now, you may not, your, your obedience is not what saves you, His obedience on the cross his obedience in this world, that's what saves you. But when we find out that we're sinners and we need a Savior, surely we have a desire to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do. I want to do what you want me to do. Do I fail? Miserably. Miserably. But that's why the Bible says if we sin, what are we to do? We are to confess our sins. And he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 
Confessing your sins uh, doesn't mean that you do some works. It doesn't mean that you give money. It doesn't mean you get up before the church and say, this is what I want to share with everybody. I think you need to learn this. You need to confess your sins to God alone. (laughs) It's not any of my business about your sins. It's not any of your business about mine. We are to confess our sins to Him alone. And if we confess our sins, He is what? He is faithful. He's faithful to forgive us and He's just. What does that mean, He's just? Well, it means this. If He has punished my sins in the person of Jesus, it would be an injustice for Him not to forgive me of them when I come to Him and say, Father, I have sinned. Now, my friends, that is good news. The good news is that he put all of my sins, he charged the Lord Jesus, that is, he imputed, that's a a word that Paul uses a lot in the fifth and sixth chapters and and the fourth chapter of Romans, he imputed, he charged the Lord Jesus with my sin. Now, I read an article the other day by a friend of mine, I hadn't seen him in many years, and it said something like this, I'm not quoting him, but I'm telling you in general, what he said. He was talking about the government paying for uh, the college education. I'm sure you've heard of that, where the government is talking about forgiving certain debts of people who have gone to college and universities, forgiving those debts so that it's paid for. Now, I often tell you that there is a difference between free and free for nothing. Ain't nothing free for nothing. It might be free to you, but somebody somewhere had to pay for it. Now, this man quoted, he quoted from this particular law that said that the question was asked, okay, if we forgive these millions of dollars in uh, college that are owed, uh, who's going to pay for it? And there was a statement that he had, and I wish I'd brought it with me today to read it, that says basically that you and I are going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it. Now, he pointed out this. He said, when the government forgives something over here, that debt really and truly becomes our debt. We have to pay for it. We don't, we can't, uh, in a capitalistic society, that is, we are a for-profit society. There's no way in the world we can compete with China, for example, China is a communistic society, and they can pay a man over there $10 a week to make what's sold over here for $1,000. They can pay him $10 a week because the government is in charge of everything there. But in a society that has freedom, and by the way, I never tire of saying this, this is not a democracy. (laughs) I'm being so tired of hearing these news commentators saying this is a republic. I pledge allegiance to the republic when we pledge allegiance to the flag, to the republic for which it stands. What does that mean? That means that the people, through their representatives, are the ones that have the power. That's what that means. This is a democratic republic, perhaps, but I've told you, go back and look up the word democracy. 
It comes out from the Latin, democracy, which means rule by the mob. Rule by the mob. That's almost where we are today. We're almost an oligarchy where we just have a few people who are ruling and calling the shots rather than the people. So we are a republic. And you pass that around. <laughs> pass that along. If you're somebody who writes to your representatives, your congressmen and your senators, write them and say, let's quit saying this is a democracy. This is a republic. And I want to be represented. <laughs> And I want you to represent me. I want somebody to stand up for me. And I want somebody to represent me. This is America where we have a republic. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he was the representative of his people. The angels said to Joseph about Mary being pregnant, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. That was before he was born. He will save his people from their sins. How is that? He'll be charged with their sins. That will make him, though he is personally innocent, though he is personally holy, though he is personally good and righteous, that will make him officially, legally guilty. And now the justice of God, the law of God, can punish him or punish me in him. And then he charges me with his righteousness. That means that his righteousness, he, what, what was he doing while he was living here? From the time he was born until the time he was crucified and buried, what was he doing? He was keeping the law of God. He rendered perfect obedience to the law of God in word, in thought, and in deed. And when I come to him, he charges that righteousness that he earned through obedience to the law, he charges it to my account. And so when God looks at my account, it says paid in full. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it as white as snow. So John 3.16 is not just about the love of God, but it is about the love of God in the sense of what God can love. God loves righteousness. God loves holiness. And God will love those people who come under his righteousness, under his holiness, who receive that righteousness through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16 talks about people perishing. What is it to perish? It is to be punished for your sins. Those who believe in Christ, he says, should not perish, but they will have everlasting life. So the God of the Bible does kill people. People say, my God wouldn't do that. Well, let me sum this up quickly. Do you know what happened to the two sons of Aaron? Do you know who Aaron was? Aaron was the brother of Moses. And Aaron had two boys that were misusing the ministry, misusing the priesthood. And what happened to them? Scripture says God killed them both. He killed them both. Have you ever heard of Eli? Eli was a high priest, and he had two boys who were misusing the priesthood. The two boys were sleeping with women and taking the part of the sacrifices that was intended for God, took them for themselves. And what happened to those two boys? God killed them. 
God killed them. And when they went to Eli, who was their father, what did Eli say? I'm mad at God. He said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. When God killed the two sons of Aaron, you know what Aaron said? The Bible says, and Aaron held his peace. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what I was talking about when God said, I will be had in reverence of all them that are about me. Let me tell you how good God is. He's so good that he wouldn't have anything to do with you or me unless he killed his son. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 and I will stop. Isaiah chapter 53. We don't understand this principle And that's one of the reasons we're confused today in the United States with regard to what used to be called capital punishment. Yes, God kills people. You say, Brother Sasser, that was in the Old Testament. Well, let me give you an example in the New Testament. When you have time, you turn to Acts chapter 5, and you'll find that Peter and the other apostles had folks coming in before them. They had sold their property, and they were going to give their money to the church to propagate the gospel. And this man named Ananias and his wife was named Sapphira, and they said, we're going to sell that little piece of land we've got out there. We want to help the church, and we want to be supporters of the church, so we're going to sell that little piece of land. And it was kind of like Franklin. About a few years ago, you could buy a condominium in Carriage Park for $50,000. That same condominium today will cost you $350, $450, and up. A little duplex just down the street from me sold for almost $600,000. We've had three, three houses in my neighborhood, and I live in an old neighborhood, maybe the first neighborhood, but first subdivision in Franklin. We had three houses. One of them that I know paid over $800,000 for the house. As soon as they bought the house, they brought in a construction crew to bought in a machine, tore the house down. Now there's just a, a vacant lot, and they're going to build about a $2 million home on that vacant lot. There's three of those things going on in my neighborhood. Just behind me, they're, they're taking 14 acres, and they're building 18 homes that started about $2 million and going up. All these 52 years, I've been going out in my backyard and see horses out there. <laughs> now I'm looking at $2 million homes coming out there. We're, we're growing trees in our backyard as fast as we can grow them. <laughs> Across the back, give us a little privacy. That's what's happening in Franklin. Well, Ananias and Sapphira went down to sell that little piece of land that they had, and lo and behold, instead of getting 100000 for it, somebody offered them 750000 This is in Acts chapter 5. It's in your your Bible. And so they came in, and Peter said, did you sell the land? Yes. How much did you sell it for? Well, it said we sold it for this much and that much because they had gotten together and said, my goodness, we didn't know we'd get this much. And so instead of giving all the money, we'll just give a little percentage of it. We give 10 or 15 percent, and we'll keep the rest of it. And so when they came in, Peter said, did you sell your land? Yes, we did. How much did you get for it? So and so and so. And Peter said, How is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And the the scripture says the man immediately was struck dead. That's the New Testament now. That's not the Old Testament. That's Acts chapter 5. He was struck dead. He fell down dead. And it says they picked him up and took him out and buried him. And about an hour or two later, a few hours later, his wife came in, Sapphira. And they said, um, 
what happened uh, to the land? She said, yeah, we sold this, that, and the other. She said, he said the same thing to her. How is it that Satan has filled your heart the light of the Holy Spirit? The hands of those who took your husband out are here with us, and they're going to take you out. And immediately, she was struck dead, and she fell down dead. And they took her out, and they buried her with her husband. My friends, the God of the Bible kills people. And if I didn't have anything else other than Isaiah 53, I would know that. And here's what I've said when I've been rambling here for the last five minutes. <laughs> I said is that we don't understand the principle behind punishment for crimes. Suppose you live in a state where they hang people, or suppose you live in a state where they shoot people, or suppose you live in a state where they have the gas chamber, or suppose you live in a state where they have the electric chair, okay? Now, what they do, they try to fix it up so that several people push several buttons or pull several switches, and nobody knows which switch was the one that triggered the death blow to that, to that criminal. But here's the thing. Those people who are in there did not kill the man. <laughs> Listen, God killed him. And God killed him using the law. He killed him using the principle of justice. He said in the Bible, if lawlessness breaks out and you don't get control of it, the whole land will be judged by heaven. That's where we're headed now in the United States. Because as I keep saying, we hold up signs that say we want to kill babies, and then the same crowd holds up signs and says, don't kill this murderer who's on death row. That is confusion. And we don't understand that when you carry out the law that God has given, it is God who is executing people. You don't execute anybody. God is the one who executes. And listen, God is the one who executed his own son. He executed his own son. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. It says, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It says in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is the Lord who said, Before I'll have anything to do with Bill Sasser, before I'll let him into my heaven, his sins must be paid for. And so I'll send my own son into the world. And I'll take Bill's sins and I'll charge them to the account of my son. And then my justice will collect for Bill's sins from my own son. It is God who kills people. And he kills people because he's just. I personally believe, you don't have to agree with me here, but America is a land of sudden death. And I believe that there are people, nobody would trace all of this trouble we're having here. We're having fires, we're having floods, we're having problems and weather and all of that. All you got to do is read your Bible and see who's in control of the weather. 
My friends, the Lord is bringing judgment on this nation because we have forgotten him. And what does the scripture say? All nations that forget God shall be turned into hell. That's what the scripture said. What we need is we need an awakening from heaven, turning the hearts of the children to their fathers and mothers and the fathers and mothers to the children and the hearts of the fathers and mothers and the children turning their hearts to God. Unless we have an awakening, we're done for. So when you read about God killing Aaron's two sons, you read about God killing Eli's two sons, you read about God opening up the earth and sending Korah and all of his family down into a pit without time to get a toothbrush or a suitcase. When you read about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, you might say, well, my God wouldn't do that. But I answer, I suspect your God wouldn't, but the God of the Bible did, and the God of the Bible does, and the God of the Bible will. And this is why America is the land of sudden death, but this is also why we have a Savior. We have a Savior because God took care of our sins in the person of his Christ. And if you don't have a God like that, your God cannot save Your God cannot save, your God cannot reconcile, your God cannot bring you to himself because you would still have sin upon you and he would have to punish you because you'd still be guilty. The scripture says he will not pardon the guilty. And the only way that can be is if I'm pardoned in the Lord Jesus Christ and charged with his righteousness. Otherwise, I can look forward to eternal punishment. May the Lord add his blessings to the teaching of his word. Now, we're going to have